I want to tell you about a podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and it busts common myths about special education. As a parent myself of a child who's had an IEP since kindergarten and he's now a 10th grader, I know how confusing, overwhelming, frustrating, sometimes daunting the whole process can be. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 Plans. And what I love about it is how easily Juliana explains everything. She answers common questions that probably every parent or caregiver has. She dispels myths and is concise and to the point. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. And there's a direct link in the show notes if you need it. Whether you're having trouble with substances or using a relationship to manage it, it doesn't have to stay that way permanently. There can be change and there is hope. As long as we have breath, there is hope that we can make changes to do things differently. Each time you make a small step in a different direction, that is worth it. And it doesn't have to be some big thing. It can be a series of small things that you put together and they make a big difference long term. You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 504 with guest Betsy Byler. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you're here. And guess what? We have exited the women's health theme and we are on to the recovery theme. And before you turn it off, if you're not someone who's in recovery, the way that I interviewed these guests and that I tried to sort of mold this theme is that it is for really, well, there's a saying in recovery where we say everyone's recovering from something. (laughs) So even if you're not someone who has maybe a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol or anything like that. We're talking about just recovery in general. And if you are interested in personal development, if you listen to this podcast plus plus other self-help podcasts, I really do think that you will walk away with some nuggets of wisdom from these episodes. And if nothing else, you will understand what it's like to, to be a person in recovery. And I know that probably most of you listening know someone who's in recovery. So that's coming up over the next couple of months here. And I wanted to tell you, Just a quick heads up, if you're on my newsletter list, if you get my emails, you will see this coming through very soon, if it hasn't come out already. Uh, There are three ways to work with me this year, all of which I'm really excited, and I wanted to give you a heads up so you know ahead of time so you don't miss it. Because I have plenty of people who are like, ah, I didn't see this, I'm not on your, your email list, and I missed it. So the first way is something I'm really excited about. I haven't done this in I don't know how long. I am offering one-off sessions at a really, really low price, and I'm going to do a set amount of them. I haven't decided 
how many, maybe I'll do about like 25 or 30 of them. But it is for anyone who is like stuck in a decision. Maybe you're stuck in a decision or you're having a creativity block or you are nervous about taking action on something. You've been kind of, you know, hemming and hawing on something, nervous, afraid, but kind of want to do it. This is the type of topic that I excel at, that is just my passion, that I I love coaching people around. There's going to be more information to see if it is a right fit for you. And I never offer these, especially at this price, (laughs) heavily, heavily discounted, because I love them. And I just, I miss getting on the phone with people to have these conversations. So that is coming up. And then there are two Daring Way um, groups that I'm going to do. So one is going to be a retreat in Asheville that's going to be this fall. I'm going to open up registration for that in a couple of months. And then there is also a Daring Way online group where we're going to meet via Zoom uh, twice a week in the evenings that's going to cover six weeks. So if you're interested in the methodology of Brene Brown that I'm certified in, one of those two is going to be perfect for you. So if you do not want to miss it, Make sure that you're on my newsletter list, andreaowen.com slash free, or if you want to make sure that you get into one of those two Daring Way programs, go to andreaowen.com slash retreat and sign up for the first to know list. And we'll tell you about both of the groups, even though it's the retreat page. And then in terms of coaching, why don't you shoot us an email if you are for sure like, I want to get in on one of those discounted one-off sessions. Shoot us an email at support at andreaowen.com in the subject line, put coaching session and just say, hey, I heard Andrea talk about this on the podcast and I want to make sure I get in on it and then I don't miss it because once those sessions are full, they are full and I'm not going to offer them at that rate again. All right. So that's it for the whole year of 2023. And I am excited to bring you today's guest. Betsy is here. I was on her show and I just, she was just one of those people. She's so incredibly smart. And I'm like, you have to come on and talk about recovery. She is a therapist herself. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Betsy Byler is a mental health therapist, substance abuse counselor, clinical supervisor, and host of the All Things Substance podcast. Betsy specializes in working with trauma and substance use. She has a passion for helping other therapists feel competent and confident in their ability to address client substance use in their own work. So without further ado, here is Betsy. (laughs) Betsy, thanks for being here. I'm so glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I knew we had to start recording because I could talk about recovery all day long <laughs> to people who have experienced it themselves and who are in the the mental health field regarding it. I want to start like from the very beginning because I have a hunch that we have a lot of people listening who look at their behaviors as self-care or they're unsure, like, is this an addiction? I don't know. And so in your words, can you tell us how you define or explain addiction? Addiction for a lot of folks seems really final and really severe. It's sort of more of a spectrum in my experience with my own experience with friends, but also in the work I do as a therapist, I see where it starts to move in a direction where it's causing problems. And so problems don't have to be where you're missing work and um, neglecting your children or anything like that. There are 
plenty of people who are starting to have more consequences emotionally, physically, relationally, and we're heading in that direction. And not because anyone's choosing to become addicted. I firmly believe that people don't choose addiction. I believe that they cho- we choose to use, but mm-hmm. nobody is thinking like, you know what? That'd be awesome. I, I can't totally wait to do that when addict. I grow up. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we all believe that we will be able to pull the plug before that happens. It is human nature to believe that we can see bad things when they're coming and we will step out of the way. What people don't expect is that the line gets really blurred. And when you're up on it, you're like, oh, no, no, no. I was just being super conservative. This really isn't a problem. I'm okay right now. And they'll say, well, everybody does this or everybody makes mistakes and, you know, drives drunk or everybody wakes up with a hangover on a Sunday or whatever the case may be. And finding people who are in the same space as you using the same amount, a lot of times can make it so you don't see your own stuff. And it is just really hard to tell. And people start sliding into a space where they're moving towards what I would say is clinically an addiction. If we're talking about clinically an addiction, we're talking about a very specific set of brain changes that occur that you wouldn't be able to tell. I mean, but they're visible on a scan, but Mm -hmm. we wouldn't be able to just tell by looking at someone. Some of it is, well, a lot of addiction happens just quietly in your mind, maybe not quietly in your (laughs) mind, but in your mind. And it's the obsession, the justification for when you've done things that aren't really what you would normally do. Mm -hmm. And so addiction looks different for everybody, but there are some commonalities between all of us who are in recovery of what we were like while we were using. Oftentimes in the moment, it's hard for people to see that in themselves. Oh yeah. In my experience, I was convinced I had a handle on it, you know, like until I until I didn't. You said a word that jumped out at me. And then I often tell people when they come to me and they're like, I'm not sure if I have a problem. And I, you know, because then they'll they'll quantify, like, well, I only drink this much, or I've cut it down to only drinking on these days or whatever. And I'm like, well, like, let's just make that not part of the equation for a second. And like, what's going on in your mind? Like, how do you feel? Like, if we were talking just about alcohol, how do you feel when you go to a wedding and you get there and you realize that it's a dry wedding and there's not going to be any alcohol? How do you feel when you're at a dinner party with people and everyone's drinking wine and you want to refill your glass, but you've already had two and you know, everybody's still on their first glass, but there's like only one glass in the bottle. Like, are you thinking about it a lot or are you engaging in the conversation? Like there's these, there's like these small moments, I think for me, where I realized it was like that whisper of like, I don't think this is healthy. I don't think other people think this way, you know? And then I would shove that aside and keep drinking. Cause I was like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that my intuition telling me that, that probably the best path for me is to get sober. But then again, you know, and then people will, will be like, well, how bad does the obsession have to be? <laughs> How often does the obsession have to be? And then I always say, like, if you feel if it's kind of fucking up your life, like 
there's your answer. Right. I was so frustrated that I was the only one that could answer that for me. People struggle with finding that line. One of the things I often do will ask people, all right, so how much is too much? When would you say that this is the line? If I'm drinking or if I'm using this much, that's too much. And so then when we inevitably get to that line, I'll say, okay, remember you told me that this amount was too much. What do you think about that? And they're like, well, I don't know. I think maybe I what that was a little, that's not quite right. Now it's further. And that's just what happens is mm-hmm. we have to move that line. But there are definitely things. I was just talking about this. Signs that use is moving from recreational to problematic. It's not really typical for normal drinkers to pre-drink before they go somewhere else, right? That's not that's not a typical thing for normal drinkers. They just don't think about it. For people who drink normally, non-problematically, it's also not normal for them to be really angry if, if something gets in the way of them being able to drink. People who drink non-problematically don't care if the people with them are drinking or not. Mm-hmm. They can take it or leave it. It's that take it or leave it thing was the, the was the thing for me. And I was like, I don't even know what that's like. I always want to take it. And that is the thing is that if that's if that's where your brain is at of I always want to take it, why would we do that? That's a signal that like your brain doesn't function the way other people's do in this sense. So for myself, I didn't know that it wasn't quote normal to feel that why would I drink if I wasn't going to get a, at least a buzz? Like why mm-hmm. bother? I don't know. I like logically I understand that. But experientially, like I would rather have Coca-Cola, like totally mm-hmm. if I'm not going to, if I'm not going to get buzzed and or hammered, like, right. why would That's I bother doing that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are people beer who, really isn't that great. No, it's not. <laughs> you know, it is by like the fourth one where you don't taste it as much anymore. It's an acquired taste, but still, I, you know, I don't want to acquire it in the first place. And people who are wine tasting, like legit doing wine tastings, they don't drink a lot. Because then you can't taste the wines. And you so it back out. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, like, so, when I found that out, I was like, why on earth? <laughs> right. And so being honest with yourself when no one else can hear that conversation, that's hard to be honest about it. Mm-hmm. To be like, oh, maybe other people don't think like that. That's why I think a lot of folks can really kind of stay in the dark about it a little bit on their own. And then others won't see it because we spend all of our lives fitting in to what's happening around us. Mm -hmm. Like we learned really early, you know, kindergarten, preschool, how to, how to act in a given setting. And so by the time we're adults, like that's second nature, right? You figure out why, you know, how to act in this situation or what, you know, people have one, they've had one drink and you're about to order a third, you know, you don't want people being like, Oh, Mm-hmm. That was kind of quick. And mm-hmm. so you're waiting to see what the what the temperature is in the room, so to speak, before you move forward. Or before you go to a different bar in the restaurant and order a shot on your way back from the bathroom. Very nice. <laughs> yep. Not that I've ever experienced that before. But you, you said something interesting about the brain. And so can you tell us why addicts do the things they do based on how the brain changes within the addicted person or the, you know, the problem drinker user? So without getting into kind of all the name, all the parts of the brain and how they function, 
there are a few systems that get impacted by substance use and they get changed like permanently to um that increases the chance of the behavior happening again whatever the behavior is part of that is the reward system that we all hear about right the things that feel good well it's not just the reward system there is something that our brain is like oh this is good mm-hmm. let's do this again and it's all based on the the drive for us to live so eating sex sleep, those kinds of things, things Mm -hmm. that make us, yeah, anything that makes us feel good, it's meant to keep us alive. And so that system is alive and well and active, even though we're not in the kind of danger for the most part that we may have been biologically speaking a long time ago. But that system is, it learns. And so when you're drinking, it's like, oh, this is good. We want more of this. And so what what ends up happening is that The reward system gets used to a certain amount of dopamine spike. That's the feel-good chemical that when we drink or use a substance or whatever, do anything pleasurable, that it spikes our dopamine and it makes us want to do it again. But if you're doing it so that it's happening more often, then your body wants it more often. It's not content with what it has. And so it's going to push you to do it more because it's like, no, 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 it's been like three or four days and we're feeling kind of edgy. We need to drink some more. So that's happening on one end. The other end is that depriving yourself of it is making you more irritable than you normally would be. It's increasing the pleasure drive, but it's also increasing your distress at not having it. And so you're getting kind of jacked on both ends, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like if you like I, I I like bananas enough, but if I stop eating, if I eat bananas for a few days and they're fine, and then I don't eat bananas, like that's not going to happen. That like anxious drive that you just mentioned, right? right? Okay, no. But say so if our dopamine and and I don't know whether you want this much detail, but I love I love brain science. I mean, if nothing else, it's all for me. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so. If dopamine sits at a zero and Mm -hmm. then we eat something, it goes up to about 100, maybe 150. Mm -hmm. If you smoke a cigarette, it goes up to 200. If you have sex that is decent. decent. I was going to say, not medium for sex. Yeah, okay. Like 200 to 250. And that's the max that we can do as a human without drugs. Like that's it. With any Mm. kind of substance. Alcohol is about 200 or 250. And it, so there's the spike and then there's the drop off. So a drop off for like nicotine is 45 minutes. So if you think about it, that's why people smoke every hour, Mm -hmm. right? Is it spikes and then it comes back down. And the thing about alcohol is the same way. So it spikes. And then the thing is, you're not just drinking a couple drinks, like it's spiking, spiking, spiking. So every time it starts to drop, you know, you're, it's increasing again. And so that is a huge reinforcer. If every single bite of something you took was spiking your dopamine, like you would want to eat that thing all the time. Mm -hmm. And so if you're drinking for four or five hours or whatever the case may be, like it's spiking your dopamine and giving you that feel good over and over and over, even though as the night progresses, it could be a shit show around you. 
Right. But your dopamine's like, woo! And mm-hmm. it doesn't care that it's a total disaster out there. It cares that you feel good. And then the, conversely, you're not supposed to have a high, high, high dopamine and then a huge drop. And so it's the drop then that's more uncomfortable because you don't drop back to zero. It's kind of like it almost drops underneath. Mm-hmm. And then normal life feels super mundane. And then you throw some shame in there and it's just. Exactly. And alcohol and other substances are super effective. If you want to stop thinking about something, it works. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's that also is giving you relief. So instead of a dopamine spike, it's taking away distress as well. And so like it's these systems that are that are all being affected and it's making it so that you are more likely to use again. Kind of the final nail, so to speak, is that it's there's something that happens in your the part of your brain that tells you that you're in danger. Mm -hmm. Is that the amygdala? The amygdala, but prefrontal cortex, a lot Mm -hmm. of our um, uh, impulse control in these systems. The thing that tells us that things are a problem, that stuff starting to fall apart. There's the thing that happens for people who are in an active addiction is they can't judge danger very well. Mm-hmm. And that's a brain change. Like that literally is changing to where they look at something that it, someone in recovery or an average person who's not using looks at and is like, holy shit. Yeah. And the person who's using is like, what? That's not that bad. And so they start, they have this thing pushing them to feel more pleasure they're way more uncomfortable not having it now. And they're really, they're really not able to judge consequences and danger the way they used to. Mm-hmm. And so why would they stop? Right. And, and so when addicts are in the midst of it, when we get further in, that gets so much more exaggerated and extreme that people can't see the disaster that is happening right before them. Mm-hmm. Even though everyone on the outside is like, dude, what are you, you doing? Like, do you mm-hmm. see that? Nope. There's a reason why someone's just overreacting or, you know, they're being judgmental. There's this protectiveness that in your body, that's like, don't let them, don't let them stop you. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, we, your brain, these drives, we need to be fulfilled you've been giving us to this and we're not going to let you just take it away. We're going to make you anxious and uncomfortable. And there's kind of this whole host of things that happens. That's all happening at the same time. That once we get into the place where the addiction, I say switch gets sort of flipped, that all is kind of cemented in and it makes quitting really hard. There's definitely been times in my life where my paycheck ran out before I got paid again, and I wish I could have accessed my next paycheck a few days before I was due to get it. Well, what if I told you that can happen with Earnin? Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. 
Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. You can use Earnin for anything you need to, therapy visits, rent, or even extra self-help books. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability and security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in noise under podcast when you sign up. It really helps the show. Noise under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking It. Uh, do you mean when the switch is flipped, when people kind of fall off the deep end into addiction or when they realize that they need to get into recovery? I would say, so I, I, and I can't say that I have science to back that up. My, I've been doing therapy with people for 19 years and working in addictions. There is a line at which it's kind of all in. They can't go back to normal. Okay. So these, these are like the cases that we see on the show intervention, people who are in active, deep addiction. When they flip that switch, it's before they get into that really dark place. But at when they look back, they can look back and go, here's the moment. Here's the time period where this completely went off the rails for me, where Mm -hmm. I can see that it was no longer dabbling. And now I'm in and nobody get in my way. That gray area is difficult, right? Because a lot of folks have use that's in this kind of gray area where they're not sure. But if you're Googling, do I have a drinking problem? You may have a drinking problem. 100%. I agree with you. That's I've never heard anyone explained it, that explained that way. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. And I've had a lot of people on talking about recovery. I've been in recovery for many, many years. and And I'm seeing my own life flash before my eyes <laughs> as a dopamine chaser. I was late diagnosed ADHD. I was diagnosed with anxiety disorder 19 years ago which I think it's kind of like, which came first? <laughs> Chicken or the egg exactly. with those two, with the dopamine issues. But that last part that you were talking about, I think that I got, I went into recovery before that switch was flipped and I saw it coming, partly mm-hmm. because I, I saw my father get sober when I was 18 and his life had pretty much fallen apart and his own mental health was, was really bad and had to be hospitalized for depression and anxiety. And there was, so, there was a voice that told me 
that is where you are headed. Like you are headed. And I had two babies and a brand new business and a husband. And I'm like, I will lose everything. And people are going to be like, how did that happen? You know, because I looked so good on the outside. So I think, and I, and I want to say this for the record, I think those of us that can see it coming and can get out, I wish it was that way for everyone. I, I want to say that. And I don't think that I am any smarter yeah. than anyone else. And who knows if there's a difference in the brain or if it was just the the kind of the planets lined up for me that I am so incredibly grateful that I got out because I could very much see because people sometimes would be like, oh, I can't imagine my life, you know, as like a runaway addict. And I'm like, I can, I can totally, totally see why people can't get sober for their kids, why they completely lose everything and have their children taken away from them and they lose their business and they blow up their marriages and and then keep using. I totally understand. I get it. And I have so much compassion for those people. Well, and I think that piece about getting sober for someone else, if love was enough, people would get sober. A hundred percent all day. Every it, day. Has, it has nothing to do nope. with that. In fact, those reasons when people come into treatment and they're doing it for someone else, it doesn't work until they find something that's really internal. Yeah. It might work in the beginning. And, and I'll take, however, anybody shows up there, say they're getting sober for someone else. Fine. I'm on it. Yeah. But very soon that's going to have to shift to something that actually I want to show up in my life. I don't want to feel like shit all the time mm -hmm. because the love of someone else is like, okay, I love them. Check. Okay. So now what's keeping me? So, you know, like, so I love them. What does that mean? And I have seen tons and tons of people struggle on both sides. The person who wonders why their parent can't give up whatever it is mm -hmm. for them. And then the person on the other side, who's like, I love my kids. Why can't I do this for them? Yeah. Well, it, there's a lot happening and, and you're right about, there's a lot of folks who are able to see it. And I can see addict behavior before I ever started using mm -hmm. the way I was as a kid, Same. you know, all or nothing mm -hmm. from very early on, as opposed to my very cautious sister who was just born that way. Right. As opposed to me, who's like, hell no, I'm going to do all the things and whatever I want all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a trait that we can have called novelty seeking. And that some of us have a greater degree of novelty seeking behavior kind of DNA coded into us that we want more new things mm -hmm. rather than just being, I don't know, fine with the way things are. And so I can see it. And I also know if I hadn't gotten sober when I did, I would, I would have gone on to use heroin, like hands down. I am the same. I, I just, I think I'm just really lucky that it never crossed my path. And for me, I think getting sober early was not because again, I was smarter or luckier mm -hmm. or whatever. It just, I don't know, something happened. I was got sick and tired of being sick and tired. And for whatever, in that moment, I was able to be like, Oh shit, I should stop this right now. And for whatever reason, I was able to do the things, but it easily could have gone the other way. That is not morality or intelligence that mm -hmm. took me there because I really thought I was invincible for the most part. Yeah. So like that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't like a choice. It just was, but I'm, I'm really, I'm really blessed because I would have been an absolute hot mess, like beyond what I already was. I have never heard of that either. The, the novelty, um, what did you call it? Novelty chasing? Novelty seeking. Novelty seeking. I still 
have to be careful with that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I lived by the mantra. I heard this in a recovery meeting one time, like, well, my philosophy is if, you know, if one is good, then five is better. And I, I've never felt so seen in my life. Like, and still like if I have a headache, I'll get the bottle of ibuprofen and two will probably be good. But I'm like, I wonder if I should take six. Like, <laughs> right. I don't, <laughs> I have a, like a quick, funny, but not funny story. So many years ago, and I I was sober at the time. I had a few years under my belt and I had shoulder surgery. I had my husband taking care of the whatever, I think Vicodin or whatever. So I was fine with that, but I got really constipated and it was like a week and I hadn't gone to the bathroom. And so I had tried um, stool softeners and laxatives and nothing was working. So I went to the pharmacist and um, it was a woman pharmacist, thank goodness. And I told her my predicament and she gave me the magnesium citrate liquid. I, I, I think it's the same stuff they give people when they're about to have a colonoscopy. And she like looked at me like dead in the eye and she was like, whatever you do, do not be far away from a bathroom when you take this. And it was like a clear liquid and it was a it was in like a one liter bottle. So I take it home. Do you think I read the instructions, Betsy, to find out how much of that I was supposed to drink at one time? <laughs> nope, because you wanted to have more because she doesn't <laughs> really know how much you're suffering. And so get it done. <laughs> you don't know how much pain I'm in. I'm just going to crack this bottle open and chugged it. I drank the entire thing in one, you know, fail swoop. I'm surprised I didn't put it in a beer bong. And then I look at the instructions and it was like, you know, someone of this weight should be about um, 200 milligrams. And I had drank five times that amount. And I was like, I think I might die. (laughs) It was awful for 24 hours. It was the worst. So it just is an example of like, my brain just doesn't. Like, why would I, why would I read the instructions first? And even if I had read them, I probably would have at least doubled it. Oh, hands down. Why? (laughs) You're not, this is like a conservative amount. No, 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 no. (laughs) Like I need this to work three days ago. Not like, yeah, I need to, I want you to put me on a freight train to pleasure town, (laughs) (laughs) whatever it is. Well, and, and that goes for pleasure and for getting rid of discomfort, whatever it is, right. That's what we're after is making us feel better or making us like in terms of better than our average or better than we're currently feeling, whichever it is. Get away from this discomfort. Yeah. And it's not that I was trying to get high. Like I know you can't get high from like cleaning out your, your GI tract. Like I just wanted to run away from this pain. So it's just, it's interesting to me to like connect the dots and still after all these years, like my brain still sometimes thinks the way that it used to. Before we run out of time, I really want, I would love for you to talk about trauma and substance use from kind of what we were just talking about, you know, for like not wanting to deal with things. So I'm just going to kind of throw that out there very broadly. So in all the years that I have worked with people myself, or I was the director of an agency for many years. And so all of my staff and all the clients I've known about, I I can't quantify how many, it's a lot. There have been, I believe, two instances where somebody who was struggling with a substance problem did not have trauma. And to that end, I was still like, are you sure? Did you just block it out? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Because literally it's so rare. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, people always downplay their trauma. When I have someone new come to me and they're filling out an intake packet and it's like, what kind of trauma have you experienced? None. Okay. And then I find out they grew up in an alcoholic home and I'm like, okay, there's no chance that you grow up in a home where someone's using actively 
and it doesn't impact you. Right. That's, that's not happening. Even if they're super functional, even if it's like a, like a happy go lucky kind of family, Mm -hmm. there's stuff lurking. Well, and then somebody's covering it up. We're all pretending that everything's fine. Right. And there is stress in that when everybody's like, nope, we don't see dysfunction. We don't feel anxiety. We're going to pretend it's not there. So trauma can be big T trauma or a little T trauma. Mm -hmm. So like big T trauma being like assault, violence, things like that. And little T being things that left an imprint that aren't necessarily maybe one of those big T things where you're having flashbacks or whatever, but that we're left over and we're really hard. Mm -hmm. And you still can think about and have connection to that emotion later. You're like, why am I being a baby about this? Well, no, we are impacted by things and we bury them very kind of not just deeply in the sense that we don't know they're there, but it's like we weave them in to ourselves. You know, these uh, statements about ourselves or things that other people say that for whatever reason, our kid self just believed and it became part of our fabric of who we are. In a lot of ways, unfortunately, it's it's the bad stuff that we do that to. It's not really common for us to weave in all the good stuff automatically. Okay. The, you know, the praise and accolades that we receive. Mm-hmm. It's just not because then it's, you could have a hundred good comments and then two bad ones and your brain is stuck on, why did they say that? Yeah. With that negativity bias that we all have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the trauma piece Oftentimes, when people experience trauma, they don't have the resources either in themselves or around them to help them interpret the situation and resolve it. So I'll say two things that seem a little opposite. One is that time does not heal wounds. Mm -hmm. Amen. And the other is that people heal naturally over time. So here's, here's the example. Let's take um, a big hurricane or 9-11 or whatever. I realize I'm slightly dating myself at that time. um, (laughs) You're in good company. (laughs) But when people have a natural disaster, the majority of folks will recover over time because that's what our body is designed to do is to try to heal itself. It just does. It tries. But when there is something that is traumatic, that impacted you in a, in a specific way, that is not going to get better on its own. It's just distant, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's not, people will, I can't tell you the number of adults who will be like, why am I this upset about something that happened 30 years ago? Right. And I'm like, because it didn't go anywhere. It's just, you weren't looking at it. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't really present. But once we look at it, it's like it just happened. Mm-hmm. And so it's when people get stuck in their healing of whatever it is, they kind of go in this endless loop around it and life keeps moving on. It's like when someone passes away and you're in two worlds at once, once on one foot, you're in the world that's still moving, going to the grocery store, bitching about dumb things annoyed with people. Mm -hmm. And the other part of you is stopped because this person just died. And doesn't the world realize that like, we should all stop. Mm -hmm. And so when that starts to get even more distant, where you feel like part of you is just stuck in that moment. And the other part of you is just moving along. 
it's like it becomes more and more distressing internally and you have to shut it down somehow. Mm-hmm. So people overwork or they drink or they have to helicopter over somebody and control right. somebody else's life or whatever the case may be is to deal with, I don't know how to resolve this on my own. And so numbing it out is super effective, not for long, right? But it's, it works In the moment. and it's mm-hmm. a lot of times can be private. There's this idea that you should be over that by now. What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. why why should we be over something but it's it's just this mentality and it also depends on culture um how you grew up the messages around you so there's a whole bunch of, of factors but trauma in and of itself is highly highly correlated with substance use that makes a whole lot of sense um i'm i'm curious i didn't initially plan on asking you this but i i love the way you talk about this and i'm I'm selfishly curious, and I know that there's a lot of people listening who, at least in some way, can identify at, with the behaviors around love addiction. And when I, this was actually before I got sober from alcohol, I was coincidentally at a rehab center because I was dating an addict. Um, I know you're shocked. <laughs> And the, it was the Meadows and P. Melody wrote the, you know, a, a book on love addiction. And I, one of the therapists pointed out when I was talking about my behavior, she's like, oh, that sounds a lot like love addiction. And I was like, what is that? And then I read that book and was like, oh my God, she's, this is like a, you know, biography of my life. I, I would just, I'm curious just to even just throw out the question again, very generally of, I, I have found it's it tricky. And in many ways, one of the hardest things to recover from as someone with, I know it's very common with some abandonment wounds because we have to be in relationship with people. And I, I see, I see my own love addiction symptoms, not just in my romantic relationships, but in my friendships with women too, that are platonic. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that around whether it's, you know, you want to talk about it in regard in its connection with trauma or recovery. I just, I just want to hear your smarts about it. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Coe, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. 
I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. People talk about love addiction. It's a little bit different. It feels very similar, right? The the compulsiveness, the uncomfortable, the drive, the obsession. It was the cycle for me. It was similar. Yeah, that's all really similar. It's it is biologically different mm-hmm. than substance use. And actually, so is um, sex addiction. It's not, it doesn't chemically do the same things as substances. I know it feels like it does, but it doesn't. Um, so it's not the same thing because the substance use addiction really is a very specific thing. But the behaviors of needing to be around people to the point that it's painful to not be that you will do a whole bunch of things that are really outside of what common sense, your common sense, your instincts, your values tell you to do. That part is something different and it's coming from a different place. And what that is coming from, in my opinion, is this, I need to make sure that I am safe and that I am okay and that I will not be alone because if I am alone, I will die. Mm -hmm. And it's a very primal place and it's also very normal. And it's a very old wound for most folks who have it. There was uncertainty around a very key time in their early life where they weren't certain that the adults around them had it handled it, whatever it is. And their kid self was like, oh my gosh, I don't know that we're okay. I don't know that we're safe. I have to make sure we're safe. And so a kid doesn't know how to do that. All they know is I have to pull all these things to me to make sure I feel safe enough. And so it could be food. It could be relationships. It could be all sorts of things that a kid would do. Almost like imagine a kid piling stuffed animals all over their body in bed, right? where they are trying to just feel safe. There is this deep sense of needing a mirror. And what I mean by that is a mirror of, am I okay? And if you don't have a mirror, that's when people start to panic internally. And that's the like asking someone who's been quiet for too long, are we okay? Mm -hmm. Or are you mad at me? Or all sorts of things, right? Of trying to get somebody to say like, am I okay? Yes, you're okay. And it's a very old wound that a lot of folks had because it isn't just biological needs that we need as kids. Whenever we look at a baby or a kid and we're cooing at them, like they bring us a a scribble and we're like, it's beautiful. And we want to put it on the fridge and like, that builds a sense of self. And it's like a mirror to the kid of like, you're amazing. And they're like, yes, I am. And that's how we build confidence as a human. 
-hmm. when you had that only sometimes, or it was not there at all, like that's kind of where the trauma starts kicking in. And the person has this kind of, they're unsure if they're okay. And what they find is that relationships are the quickest way to feel okay, to have someone else. It's like a shortcut. Am I okay? And the person's like, I need you more than I need life. And you're like, yes, we're going to do this together, right? We're going to be all in. That person starts pulling away in any way, even a perceived way. They didn't answer you quick enough, that kind of thing. Then that emptiness kicks in and the panic starts. And that's when they're like, they'll do anything. And they end up doing, and a lot of women specifically do a lot of things that in their, in their right mind, when they feel calm would not do right. And no, it's not great. But in the moment they literally cannot stop. I love that explanation. I mean, so much, if I wasn't already married, I would ask you to marry me speaking, (laughs) speaking, speaking as a love addict. When you were saying that, like the whole, um, you know, when you're a kid and your parent gets excited over your scribble and and knowing if you are okay, okay, my words that I use for that is valued. Like, mm-hmm. am I valued here? And then even now at 47 years old, I've talked about this on my show before, is when we talk about like worthiness, like as a whole, I know it's a big topic in these spaces, like. I don't really have a fear that I'm unworthy. Maybe that's not just the word that doesn't resonate with me. My biggest fear is that people don't really like me all that much. Like they mm-hmm. pretend like they do and they like to have me around sometimes, but at the end of the day, they're like, nah, we don't, we don't really like you all that much. And it comes down to that. Like, am I valued by, am I perceived as valuable to other people is really the better explanation because you're right. Like I participated in behaviors that, I would hate for someone else to do to me, but I did them all in an effort just to feel some semblance of, do you like me? Do you love me? Am I valuable? Am I wanted in these spaces? Even if it was very temporary and even if I knew it was temporary. And the thing is, is that we may know that it's only going to last for a few minutes, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but it is almost unbearable to say no. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, and this is why when I talk with a lot of my, um, a lot of my young women about casual sex, right? Like, I don't have a moral judgment about that. Like, sleep with whoever you want. Mm-hmm. And if you feel worse in the morning, that's a problem. Right. Right. Because in that moment, they feel totally focused on and present and whatever, and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. And then it leaves you feeling even worse. And it's this pattern that they're like, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm not going to do it again. And then they find themselves in it. And sometimes it's one person that they have no ability to say no to. Yeah. Just none. And it's like, it's like kryptonite almost. Like they just, they just can't. And part of that is finding that very deep, negatively held belief about, I'm not lovable. I'm not, et cetera. Like that we, part of what I do, cause I, I do trauma work. Um, and I'm an EMDR therapist is that we have to root out at its core to say, and, and not the, a mantra is not going to do it. Like there, there's some very deep stuff. And then there's all these messages about, you shouldn't care what people think about you. Bullshit. Everybody cares. 
Thank Everybody you. cares. I say the same thing. Like <laughs> every human. I, okay. Like I generally don't give a fuck about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Even I, when somebody doesn't like me, I'm like, oh, hmm. you know, like I feel that I have to not <laughs> let it change what I do. Like that's mm-hmm. the difference, right? I still have to do what I'm going to do and be me and be consistent with who I am and what I want to portray. But that doesn't mean I don't feel it. And so it's like, it's just another way to shame ourselves that like we're weak or we don't, you know, we're too sensitive or too whatever people tell you, as opposed to just owning the fact that it bothers me. I have a hard time. If someone, if someone's saying to themselves, when someone doesn't like me, I will go out of my way to make them like me. And it's, I know I'm doing it and I know I shouldn't do it, but I can't stop myself. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's this really difficult thing that we want to empower women, right? We want to empower anyone who hasn't had a voice to have a voice mm-hmm. because we want them to feel heard. And at the same time as we're telling them that they're not sure they deserve to have a voice or have anything useful to say. And it's, it's just a bunch of people who were raised by other broken folks and not broken per it's not like broken, not worthy, but like, we're all kind of you know, yeah, like we're all missing some shit. (laughs) And, you know, and some people had worse experiences than others. Maybe they were raised by truly evil folks. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Most of the time people are trying to not fuck up their kids and minimize the amount of therapy they need. I don't know. We're all just trying to make it having some grace for yourself that there are things that are harder for you and why? I don't know. They just are. And to have some grace that like your kid self learned that if you did things for people that they liked you. And so you have trouble saying no. And that's an old message, but that part of you still exists and you don't have to berate her. You can just tell her that it's okay. If that person doesn't like you, you can feel sad and you can feel it and you cannot change what you're going to do. You can still yeah. do something different and not letting that part drive the show. I didn't get that message as a kid. Right. right. <laughs> and that's the message we're trying to get people now. Right. Right. As Is just because you had this old stuff, you can mm-hmm. choose something different now. Now. Yeah. You said something that like hit me over the head a minute or so ago. And you said like, you keep making these decisions and and oftentimes it's with one person over and over again, where to say no to that person almost feels unbearable. And in my head, I thought to myself, uh, for me, it wasn't almost like it would, like, I felt like I would die. Like if I, Mm -hmm. if I actually, and I remember I've, I've mentioned this on a podcast a long time ago, there was a scene in sex in the city. So this had to be late nineties. And I had been in a a relationship for many years at that point, which did continue for many years. That was not healthy, but there's a scene where Carrie is, is supposed to go on vacation with Mr. Big and she's doubting the relationship. And, and he's like, you know, getting her suitcases and putting it on the curb. And she says no to him. And I remember thinking, what is that like? Like, what is that like to be able to know that like in like your gut is telling you like this relationship is no good. Like I don't want to make this choice with this person. The evidence is no. 
but, and then actually say no, like the, the chronic self-abandoning that I was doing and that scene stuck with me for so many years. And even when I watch it on YouTube, I get emotional and I took, I mean, it took him leaving me after we were married for me to finally get away from this relationship. And it's so difficult when people around you are like, why on earth are you, you're, you're too good for him. Like why on, and I, and I felt so stupid. Like, why can't I be stronger? Why can't I be a better woman? Like, and I think it's helpful to hear and not use it as an excuse to stay long, longer term. But just to, uh, if I would have had more compassion for myself in those moments, mm-hmm. instead of just so much self-loathing and so much shame around it, I might have been able to find the strength to leave. I can't say for sure that I would have, but it it would have been a very different experience. And I think that is the cycle that we get into. How can you beat yourself down about staying and then have the strength to leave? That's not a good like warm up. <laughs> right. And, and I think it's sort of what we need. And our, I think what our friends need in those places is I don't totally get why you're staying. I think you see what I see and I'm going to stop bitching about it. And I'm just going to tell you, I love you. And that whenever you choose to go, I'm here for you, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to bitch about him anymore. I'm not going to, I'm just going to be your friend. And I want you to know that I, I may not get it, but like, I can see how given a different set of scenario, it might be me too. Because mm-hmm. we all have that. Oh, yeah. It's just a different. There are other things that we'll put up with that someone else is like, what the fuck is that? Like, mm-hmm. why would you put up with that shit? Right. I don't know. It's it's very it's very different. But I think when it comes to what we're doing to survive, whether it be survive trauma past, present, or survive discomfort, we're doing the best we can to make it up. And Mm -hmm. substances feeds into that. Bad relationships, feeding our need to feel whole, which is not a bad need. It's just we're feeding it with something that's really temporary. It's the best we can do at the time. And to have some grace for yourself. Mm -hmm. Grace is different than making excuses. Like I can feel that difference when I'm just like totally being like, it's like weak when I'm, you know, not like weak as in not strong, but just lame mm-hmm, excuses mm-hmm. for why I'm going to do a thing. I'm like, this is so lame, even as just I'm thinking it. justifications. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then I encourage people just fucking own it, just own it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but I think having grace for ourselves, like at least stop beating up on yourself about it and just yeah. accept this is the thing I'm doing right now. I don't want to do it forever. And I'm going to stop making it harder to exist. Uh, yeah, let it, let's just end on that note because <laughs> if people take nothing away from this, and, and we took a lot of turns, and I, I appreciate all of your your expertise and uh, and the really the way that you explain things. I, I know that my listeners were probably taking notes. I'm going to listen to this more than once. But to, um, before we close out, I always like to give my guests an opportunity to circle back to something that you said or add anything to feel complete. I guess I want to just say that. Whether you're having trouble with substances or using a relationship to manage it, like it doesn't have to stay that way permanently. There can be change and there is hope. As long as we have breath, there is hope that we can make changes to do things differently. And each time you make a small step in a different direction, 
Like that is worth it. And it doesn't have to be some big thing. It can be a series of small things that you put together and they make a big difference long-term. Yeah. So when you see people like us that have long-term recovery that, you know, seem like we got it all together, like that, that was all these small steps, little things that we learned over time. Mm -hmm. And certainly we don't have it all together. There's still stuff that happens, but like you aren't so far from it. It's just deciding to take the small step that you can take. What can you do? hundred percent. Thank you. Thank you so much for your, for your time. And we're going to put all those links in the show notes and you're at betsybyler.com and you have your own podcast, correct? I do. So you can just go to betsybyler.com. The podcast is on Apple, Spotify, et cetera. It's called Mm -hmm. all things substance. I'd be happy if anybody reaches out and wants to ask a question, I'm happy to, to answer those. Yeah. I really appreciate you having me on. It was fun. Yeah. This has been so, so great and enlightening and everyone. Thank you so much for your time. You know how grateful I am that you choose to spend it with me and my guests. And remember it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hey, did you know there's free secret podcast episodes waiting for you that are not part of my regular podcast feed? Yes. AndreaOwen.com slash free. And you just sign up you get a link sent to you. It's very secret. It's like a secret club. We don't have a secret handshake. Don't worry about that. But it's these motivating podcast episodes that I made for you. They're under 20 minutes each. There's three of them. They're for wherever you are in your life. So head on over there and grab them. They range from really supporting you and seeing you where you are and being compassionate all the way to giving you a giant kick in your ass and telling you how amazing and gorgeous and phenomenal you are. So andreaowen.com slash free and get your hands on that free podcast feed. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.